All right, peace family. This is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy and Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I wanna thank you all again for joining us for Streets to the State House. Um, this podcast is designed to really give people a look on what's happening real time in the Maryland General Assembly around issues that relate to racial justice. And those who are familiar with LBS, we're a grassroots think tank that advocates for the interests of black people. Um, and a big part of why it's important for us to focus on advocacy in Annapolis is because much of the policies And so it's particularly important. We felt it was particularly important um, for those that don't have the time to, you know, to check in on a lot of these, you know, seven hour long Zoom videos to see committee hearings. You know, we figured we bring to you um, the, the details that you need to know um, so that you can t contact your legislator and support folks that are working on efforts that impact our community. Um, so that's really, you know, what this is about for those who, who've been with us before. You know, thanks for continued support. Um, and so, of course, as you all know, if you've seen the promotion, you know, we do this in partnership with our sister, our friend, our comrade, Kalila Harris. Um, Kalila Harris um, is, you know, a big supporter and ally of LBS, um, worked on a variety of things together in the past. Um, how you doing, Kalila? <sighs> it's Tuesday, right? I thought it was Friday for a second. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, I am constantly uh, pivoting from local to state, state to national. So on any given day, you know, I'm talking about policy to somebody. Mm. But uh, on today and in this moment, we're talking about Maryland state policy and how it impacts Baltimore City. So I'm good and I'm glad to be in the number. Yep. And let me let me pick you up some more for a second, because I think it's important for people to you know be clear. Policy is really complicated and it's real different. The local, state, federal level. Um, and you wanted a few people who, you know, I see keeps tabs on all you know those levels. Like for LBS, we focus primarily on local and state level politics. So, you know, it's good that we have you as someone that's keeping an eye on some of the federal stuff. And maybe as we expand in the future, you know, we can kind of be more active in the in the in the federal um, policy making space as it relates to black people. Um, in the region. Um, so thank you for lending your expertise and being with us once again. Um, so let me just give an overview um, of what we're going to do this evening. Um, first, we're going to hear from, you know, in the past, both in terms of last session and last few episodes, we focused primarily on some of LBS's particular priorities. Um, we're gonna, we actually have some guests on um, that are going to talk to us about um, just updates on other issues um, that impact our community that are being dealt with in Annapolis. Um, so I'll kick it to Kalila um, to help facilitate the updates on some of these important um, legislative activities. All right, so friends, thanks so much again for tuning in. Um, you know, this is the, from the streets to the to the state house is a podcast that's really intended to make sure. Uh, you folk are updated on what's happening in, Annap in Annapolis. We know that um, there's no way to get to Annapolis from Baltimore or actually most of the state. And so a lot of times policies go by us and sometimes people are asking us to advocate, but they don't know exactly what they're advocating for or something changes between legislative sessions or their elected officials are trying to convince them that something else is happening than what the advocates are telling them. So uh, we're going to talk to these guests and get some updates from them on what's happening in the state house um, and how it impacts you. So I want to first kick it off with Jenny Egan. She is a public defender. Michelle Hall. 
Not Jenny, Michelle. <laughs> Apologies, Michelle. Um, no worries. When you pinch hit and you, you come through in the clutch, you know, sometimes there's a mixed signal. My apologies. No, you're fine. You're fine. This is Michelle Hall, who is a public defender with the Office of Public Defender. Michelle, what are some updates uh, that are important for the viewing audience to learn more about? Sure. So thank you all for having me. And I mean, obviously what you're doing is tremendously important because as Davon said, no one really has time to sit and listen to these hours and hours long Zoom streams. And it's important to have these updates in an accessible format. Um, I'm here today to talk about the juvenile justice bills that are currently in the General Assembly. And this is a big year for juvenile justice reform. Um, I work primarily in Prince George's County. I started as a juvenile public defender here and did that work for about three years. Um, and there's a lot of major bills this session that are really meant to fundamentally change the structure um, of juveniles who are involved in the legal system in Maryland. So one of the biggest is the juvenile justice reform bill. Um, and this was cross-filed in both the House and the Senate, um, which is a big deal because that means that there's agreement on both sides that this is something important that should um, go through. Um, and this really changes our juvenile system in four ways. So first, it raises the age that you can be in juvenile court. So as it is right now, you can be charged in juvenile court at pretty much any age. I've had clients as young as 10 years old uh, for something as silly as a trespass at school. Um, so this bill raises the age of juvenile court um, to 13 years old with some exceptions for really serious offenses between the ages of 10 and 12. Um, and you know, as we know, part of the school to prison pipeline is kids being sucked into the system really early. And so this is so important um, to raise the age of when you can even come into juvenile court. The second major piece of this is banning the use of out-of-home placements for low-level offenses. Um, so two-thirds of kids that are removed from their homes and sent to juvenile prisons and jails um, are sent um, for nonviolent felony offenses or non-felony offenses. Um, and a third of kids are sent on technical violations of probation, um, so something um, like being absent for, or getting suspended from school and those types of issues. So this part of the bill bans the use of out-of-home placements for those types of offenses because we know that kids are best served when they're in their communities. And so it works to keep kids in their communities in that way. Third is limiting uh, terms of probation. I don't know how many of y'all know this, but as it stands right now um, in Maryland, juvenile probation can be indefinite. So that means you're put on probation for something when you're 16, you could be on for maybe two years, three years, juvenile court can exist up until the age of 21. Um, so this would limit the length of probation um, based on whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor. Um, you know, what we know about kids, and there's a great report from the Annie Casey Foundation um, that talks about how most kids are not um, committing new offenses. And a lot of kids, you know, you make mistakes, and that is not a reason to be kept on probation to have perfect compliance. And a lot of times what we see is kids are kept on probation um, just because of small things, small mistakes that we all make. Um, and we're not giving kids that type of grace and keeping them under the supervision of the court. Um, and finally, um, this bill will make it easier to divert kids out of the justice system, giving more off-ramps for kids. Um, one of the most important things that I'm really passionate about um, is that actually there's a component of the bill that says that um, kids cannot be in juvenile court for something that should be handled in school, which dovetails to some of the other juvenile justice bills happening right now, um, which are the various police free school bills. Um, I really want to flag that tomorrow there is a hearing on Delegate Octavero's bill, the Police Free Schools Act, 
um, which is House Bill 1089, which will actually end um, having police in schools and this requirement by the Maryland Safe to Learn Act um, that schools have to either have school resource officers or adequate law enforcement coverage. Um, and so this will say you, school districts cannot contract um, with police departments, which is huge. And really, you know, what we see both by being able to prosecute kids in juvenile court for things that happen in school and the presence of police officers in school is kids being sucked into the system for things um, that they shouldn't be sucked into the system for. One study found um, that schools with SROs were five times as likely to have kids arrested for things like disrespect, minor fights, and things that are really typical for kids being in school, but when you have a police officer in school, all of a sudden you're being arrested for it. Um, so that bill, Delegate Acevedo's bill, is being heard tomorrow, and there was another bill, Delegate Wilkins' bill, um, Counselors Not Cops, which does uh, some similar things um, in terms of moving money away from having police officers in schools, and that was heard earlier in February. Um, the last two bills that I want to flag, um, Earlier in the session, um, the Juvenile Restoration Act um, was heard in the House and the Senate, and that is in committee right now. Um, and that um, act says that juveniles who received um, life sentences when they were um, juveniles have to have mandatory resentencings. And this is huge. The Supreme Court has said um, that you have these types of sentences are unconstitutional, and this is getting Maryland in line with that. Um, and finally, the juvenile interrogation bills. Um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of us are familiar with the story of the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five. Um, and as it stands right now in Maryland, a kid can be interrogated by police without any parent present, without an attorney present, um, or anything like that. And there's really nothing that um, has to be done to protect those kids' rights. Um, so this bill says um, it requires officers to contact parents and have um, kids talk with the parents, talk with the lawyer before questioning, um, which is really will really change the way um, the kids encounter the police and hopefully really stop juvenile interrogations altogether. So those are some of the big um, highlights of what's happening in juvenile justice so far this session and going forward. Michelle, thank you for that. That That's amazing. Um, a lot of the work that I've done over the years includes um, not only dismantling the school to prison pipeline, but disrupting school push out for girls. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes their confinement doesn't look like being locked up or placed in a, a juvenile detention facility, it might be becoming pregnant too early because you've been put on the street or being mm -hmm. human trafficked because you've been put on the street for a suspension or expulsion from school. I think uh, Delegate Boyce, if I'm not mistaken, put something forward about how we support students who are returning to public schools, um, that they, their record remain with the school district so that they can be uh, supported and they, they can be tracked as opposed to their data being sent to the juvenile facilities school, school and mm -hmm. then transferred back to um, the public school system. I know with yeah. COVID, we have a number of young people who have not been heard from. Um, and I have been working with my team to do some research on what's happened with students in juvenile detention facilities, because depending on the state and just like we see here in Maryland, if they're not enrolled in the public school system, who's keeping track of whether or not um, they got re-entered if they left the facility mm -hmm. while school is out? So you have any yeah. insight on that? 
Well, I, um, and I think that it was Delegate Voices Bill that we submitted um, testimony in favor of, but this was a huge um, act that I had to grind in the beginning of COVID. Um, and I do think that, that this bill has moved forward. Um, but as it stands right now, when you are detained, even if you're detained as a kid for something as little as two weeks, you're automatically unenrolled from school. Um, and then when you're released, your parent has to go through the process of the entire process of re-enrolling you in school as if you are a brand new student. So lease, uh, vaccinations, all this, all this stuff and all this paperwork. And actually what happened at the beginning of the pandemic for a lot of my clients is the school system was saying, well, because you physically have to re-enroll in school and school is closed. And at this point, this is like in March when we don't really know what's going to happen. But they said, well, we don't really have a mechanism for you to re-enroll in school because schools are closed. And so you're just out of luck which was outrageous. And I, I could not believe, I was fundamentally floored that that was something that um, they were saying. Um, and because of myself and other attorneys pushing back and saying, no, our clients have a right to education. Oftentimes kids that are in the juvenile system are kids that have special education needs. They need to have their needs met. And just because they're being, excuse me, they've been released because of the pandemic doesn't mean there should be this major gap in education. And so this bill, um, you know, keeps kids enrolled um, in their home school until the disposition of their case, which is a big deal because a lot can happen between when you were originally arrested and whenever if you have a trial and lose and are ultimately sentenced in juvenile court, or if you plea, or if you have a trial and win, right? A lot can happen. A lot of times kids are released um, because we don't want kids to be detained if they don't have to be detained. And so there shouldn't be this stopgap of re-enrolling in school. Even when, um, I think school systems got a little bit back on their feet in terms of the pandemic. I had kids who were released from detention. It was still taking two weeks for them to get back into school. So you're falling even further behind. There's also a mismatch between the curriculum um, when you're detained and the curriculum in your home school. So there's a lot of issues. Um, and this is part of the reason why right, we want to be detaining kids less because you can lose so much in going back and forth between detention and the community. So many, I mean, the rates of kids who are not graduating, even though you're in school the entire time um, when you're in school in a facility versus in the community, but because there's a mis mismatch in the credits, all of a sudden you're not graduating, but you've been doing school this entire time. And so, I mean, this bill, that bill is fundamental and making sure that even for, we're not leaving our kids behind, our detained kids. Um, if we really believe that education is making that big of a difference, we shouldn't make it that much harder for kids to continue their education, whether they're detained or in the community. Right, and for, for those folks who don't know, Article 8 of the Maryland Constitution is the single entitlement that our state constitution offers, and that is an entitlement to an education. And so this is really a civil rights issue when you have students being detached from school um, who are under the age of the ability to unenroll from school themselves. So, so many layers here, but we wanna make sure all of our students are accounted for and that they have an opportunity uh, to transition into the world of work without, um, frankly, having people drop the ball on their literacy uh, and the skill building that they need to survive. So, uh, Michelle, thank you. I'm going to bring you back in after we hear from some others. Want to remind awesome. Thank you. Want to remind the audience to ask questions. And Michelle will be coming back. And if you have questions for her, drop them in the chat on YouTube or Facebook and we will get to you. I want to bring in Chris Dews from uh, Job Opportunity Task Force. Uh, since we're talking about the transition. Chris, tell us what JLTF's been working on 
um, and you know what we should be looking out for as we approach Sine Die. Indeed. Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. Uh, my name is Christopher Dews, and I am a policy advocate for the Job Opportunities Task Force. So generally speaking, our, our policy agenda revolves around decriminalizing poverty, uh, increasing paid sick and safe leave options, and generally uh, increasing access to um, criminal record expungement. Our mission is and continues to be, and is definitely prior to, uh, is, is strong in this session, is to help lower wage workers advance to higher wage jobs. Uh, the, the biggest piece of legislation that I wanted to bring up uh, today is the Maryland Criminal Justice Debt Elimination and Prevention Act. And what this bill simply does is it eliminates as many fines and fees that are associated or garnered from interactions with the criminal justice system. So uh, I'll, I'll just start with a few definitions. Well, you know what, forget that. I'll start with the bill number and who our sponsors are and things of that nature, then I'll go into it a little bit further. Uh, so the bill sponsors that we have right now on the House side is uh, Delegate Deborah Davis, phenomenal advocate. I know Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle just recently cut a video with her talking about uh, how uh, the Fraternal Order of Police have been trying to undermine a lot of policing reforms. So she's always been a phenomenal advocate. So we we, we really tapped her uh, really strongly to get her in on this bill. So that is House Bill 1331. It is being heard next week, as well as Senate Bill 898, which is uh, being sponsored by Dele uh, Delegate Senator um, GLP Carter. And both of these bills, what they simply do is going to eliminate these fines and fees. Now, here's the thing. Many people are familiar with fines. Getting fined from the criminal justice system revolves around everything from basically the court telling you you have to pay a certain amount of money back based off of something that you did. People are used to fines and things like traffic, right? You get a parking ticket, that's technically a fine. You get a speeding ticket, that's technically a fine. Many people are aware of this. A district court, for example, will charge you just for taking being in court, will charge you $20.50. However, fees is a little bit more elusive. Fees are fees of service. So basically, the court system or the justice system is saying, hey, we provided a service to you. You need to pay us back. And these uh, fees can range through everything having to do with the criminal justice system, including fees for uh, a public defender, paying them back in reimbursement, uh, jail room and board. A lot of people don't know this, but you can get you get charged just for being in jail. It actually results in millions and millions of dollars of money back to the state. There is a fee for electronic monitoring, which is the ankle bracelet that you get if you are on home detention. There is a fee for home detention. There is a fee for parole and probation. If you are incarcerated and they allow you to go on work release, there is a $135 fee for that as well. There is a fee for drug and alcohol testing, $100 flat, just straight up for drug testing. And then every time they random you, that's a $6 charge and a $1 charge for alcohol. There's also a $30 filing fee for just uh, getting your criminal record expunged, specifically if you have a conviction. There's also a $28 charge for getting fingerprinted. And above all, beyond all these different things, when you have to pay back all these fines and fees, there is, if you can't pay or pay on time, the CCU or the Central Collections Unit will collect 17% in interest or late fees on whatever you owe back to the system. So. Just to jump to the point here, how does this entire thing fall into place? This really took off after the housing crisis in 2008, 2009, and really started to make moves uh, during the Bush era. Now, they've always been charging these different types of fines and fees, but this really started getting heavy uh, in that Bush era where things started to get privatized. 
So what happens is the states didn't want to say, and I, stop me anytime if you think I'm talking too much, but the states generally wanted to say, well, how can we lower taxes? That was one of uh, W. Bush's uh, big policy proposals where we're going to try to lower taxes. One of the ways that they decided to do that was by offsetting as many, I want to be clear, as many expenses in the criminal justice system as they possibly could to individuals instead of having the justice system pay for itself. Okay, so what that means is instead of, I don't know, our home detention, letting the state pay for it, like it pays for everything else through taxes, like it pays for schools, let's let the individuals who are on parole and probation, who are on home detention, pay for themselves. Now, when you couple this with the fact of racial profiling in the state of Maryland, which is very strong, and the fact that the state of Maryland, as an example, has 70, I think it's 72% of Marylanders of the incarcerated population in Maryland are black, right? Even though we're only 31% of the population. So what you end up having is that a vast majority of black people end up disproportionately having to pay back all these access fees of service. Double that with the fact that the vast majority of people who are paying back these fines and fees and are having interactions with the criminal justice system happen to be poor. So let's just be clear. You have poor, specifically black and brown people, but mostly black people, leveraging or paying to fund the criminal justice system that literally impoverishes them, harasses them, and abuses them. When you think about over-policing and overcharging as well, then you just find that the poorest among us happen to consistently find themselves in cycles of poverty and cycles of debt because they are funding the criminal justice system. Just the district court by itself last year collected $58 million in fees. And if the vast majority of that is coming from black and brown people, well, then you understand why uh, we're struggling to have money. When you look at GPS monitoring as an example, the ankle bracelet, many people think that if you're on home detention, uh, that that is free as you await trials. If you look at specifically at pretrial, you are awaiting trial. ASAP Home Detention, which is a private home detention monitoring agency, will charge you anywhere from ten to twenty dollars a day. One of our clients is paying three hundred and sixty-four dollars per month, per month, just to await trial. So I want you to just take a step back and think about this. All these fines and fees, even if you look at the GPS monitoring of three hundred and sixty-four dollars a month. You need money to pay that, but a criminal record or any association with the criminal justice system pretty much will stop you from having access to employment because a criminal record is by far the number one barrier to employment in the state of Maryland. So what you have is people who then can't pay because they just don't have the money, either risking incarceration or ending up in long-term debt simply for having interactions with the criminal justice system. And because it's you know, formerly incarcerated citizens or people awaiting trial, there's this kind of disgusting mentality, a, really a dehumanizing mentality saying, well, you know, they did the crime, they so they deserve it. And there's a difference between doing the crime and doing the time and doing the crime if you even were found guilty and then having to pay back the state hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to get that fixed. But I've talked too much. I just wanted to end on this note by saying that um, these debts lead to lost wages, unemployment, decreased credit scores. And if you have a decreased credit score, that leads to an increase in your auto insurance premiums. So it just becomes a, a, a just a huge mess for people. Our bill, Senate Bill 898, House Bill 1331, seeks to fix this. And we have a survey for anybody who's listening who knows anybody who has had to pay any form of money back to the criminal justice system. We have a survey that we uh, would love 
for you to fill out so we can have a little bit more ammunition when we go into the hearing next week. And to be clear, I just wanted to say that hearing is uh, for the House side is on the 9th at 1.30 in the Judiciary Committee. I'm still looking for witnesses. I would love to have more people who are in the impacted community who have actually had to pay these fines and fees testify to how that system works. And then the Senate hearing is one day later at 12 noon, March the 10th. So that is our biggest piece of legislation. That's I just awesome. want to say, I'm sorry, I know I'm talking way too much. I'll no, 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 thank you. That was that was a wealth of information. And, you know, people, just to drill it down for people, um, when you think about the 2020 election and you have uh, in the state of Florida, you know, uh, um, Meat Mill and other people putting money together to pay off these debts so that, formerly incarcerated people can vote, right? So if you want to think about the implication of these the, these fees, not only are people funding the system to keep them incarcerated, um, but they do their time, they end their service, they finish their parole, but they still have these fees. And in some states, that means you cannot vote. Um, and th th that is unconscionable. Uh, when you have people who get picked up for jaywalking or you know just some some minor offense uh, that likely shouldn't be um, putting them behind bars in the first place, um, mm -hmm. and then requiring them to pay fees that begin a cycle of um, deepening inequity and increasing their poverty level, this is where you talk about the criminalization of poverty. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that JOTS report, you can go to JOTS.org um, or you can just hit the Googles and take a look at the uh, uh, report called the criminalization of poverty to look at the, the multiple policies that JOTF has set out to ensure uh, that elected officials and the general public understands exactly how people are continuously involved in the criminal legal system uh, just so uh, uh, these fees can be collected, which in turn get poured back into a system that frankly harasses them. Um, we know if we need additional fees, we know where we can find them. We're gonna talk about that a little later. We can take it out of the police budget. So thank you again, Chris. I'm gonna pull you back in as well a little later. Wanna remind the viewing audience to drop us some questions uh, for our guests in Again, just building on what we've already been talking about, I wanna uh, give a virtual hug to our next guest, my girl, Nicole Mundell. She is executive director of the Out for Justice organization. She is a queen among queens um, and she's a dope sister. She's also uh, someone who's formerly incarcerated and, can, and does this work from lived experience and not just shoulder surfing other people um, who may need someone to advocate for them. So she's a, a, a strong, a strong, a strong force in Annapolis working for all of us. And Nicole, come on in. Tell us what you're working on with Alpha Justice. Thank you. Now, I only learn from the best. So it is an honor to be virtually right beside, to my left, of, some, of a bad sister, right? Like, you know, I, I see you every day. I'm learning from you. And so um, I do not do this work alone. I can say that I am, I am, I'm grateful, right? I'm grateful to have other black women 
standing with me and protecting me and checking me and educating me. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate you. Come on, tell us what you're working on. Oh my goodness. So we're working on a lot, right? And most of the things that were already said by my colleagues, um, Michelle, the work she's talking about um, as it relates to juvenile interrogation work, um, my colleague Chris over at the Job Opportunities Task Force, working on the partial expungement work group, and Karen is doing a, an amazing job trying to make sure that the impacted groups are on that work group. That is a big deal to ensure that the groups that were doing the work around expungement is able to lead in that discussion. Um, another bill, 1277, which is a really important bill because it's about making sure that the Office of Public Defender, um, that they are not at will, right? You know, in Maryland, um, employers are able to at will uh, get rid of you, right? And so as the, the, as the Office of Public Defender, is moving in this new direction, we want to make sure that they are not uh, at will employees and that they they have some extra protections, right? We talk a lot about the Office of Public Defender. A lot of people look at them as these non-attorneys, but I would argue that they are attorneys doing really great work. I work with many of the baddest public defenders in this state. Um, and so we wanna make sure that these individuals are able to work in a comfortable environment, an environment that protects them, that values them. Um, and so that's one of the, um, the many bills that we are working on, the Reentry Success Act, um, which is just an offset legislation to Senator Ellis's bill from our last session that ensures that individuals coming out of our prisons and jails have access to um, social security card, birth certificate and IDs. And I know many people will say, well, I thought that law already exists, but it doesn't, right? People are not giving their IDs when they come out. They're not giving their birth certificates when they come out. They're not giving their social security cards. And so Senator Ellis' bill of last year ensures that the legislation says that they must work together. So each agency that is going to be responsible for giving folks their identification information must work collaboratively with the um, Department of Corrections, right? We gotta make sure that in our legislation, there's accountability, right? We have legislation often that's very trendy, right? That the topic looks good, but in the meat and potatoes of this policy, there is no accountability, there's no safeguards, there's no reporting back on uh, how agencies perform. Um, and that brings me into, oh, so I just wanna make sure 1233, the Reentry Success Act. So Delegate Felmark's bill is just filling in the gap of what Senator Ellis' bill did not do. We found some advocates we got together last week, uh, Tia Hamilton of State versus Us, uh, Monica Cooper, Marlo Hargrove, and a couple other uh, reentry advocates got together to look at that. And we found that in that policy, it said that people behind the walls could get food stamps and, and assistance if they were eligible. And we were like, hold up, if they were eligible, right? If you keep that type of language and policy for individuals coming home from our prisons and jails, they may not even apply because they just may feel like, oh, well, maybe I'm not uh, uh, applicable, right? So we wanted to make sure that any language that would prevent our folks from accessing these services would remove because 
We are indigent coming home from our prisons and jails. We have nothing to do with what our family had, but what our spouse had. We are coming home to nothing. And that is the way we want it, want to be viewed. Do not look at us as if we have some extra assets hiding somewhere and that we are not eligible for these services to make sure that we are having a successful reentry. Um, I want to uh, make note that it's something I'm very proud of. I co-led the coalition for almost three to four years to ensure that women coming home from our prisons and jails have access to a pre-release facility. I cannot say that louder. We overrode the governor's veto, and I am looking forward to ensuring implementation on that policy. Um, HB 222 is also a piece of legislation I'm very proud of. Um, it's, it's supported by the Expand the Ballot, Expand the Vote Coalition, and this is a coalition that worked with our justice last election to ensure that individuals across the state of Maryland in pretrial detention had access to the ballot. And we were able to make the Board of Elections, the State Board of Elections, do something that in its own words had never done before. This was historic. And so coming into the legislative session, we were able to actually put into law or put language in a bill that we actually implement. Right. How often do, are you able to write policy that you actually battle tested? And so we want to make sure that everyone knows that HB 222 is the go to voting uh, behind the walls legislation. It includes an ombudsman. I hope I'm saying that word right. I hate saying that word. Um, it includes um, reporting by the state board. And I will remind you that the state board is in support of this legislation. Um, it ensures that education is, civic education is done behind the walls. It ensures that there's a um, 1-800 hotline number for individuals who are having issues behind the walls. It ensures a drop box at every pre-trial um, detention center across the state. So this is a this is a bill that is comprehensive. And this is a bill that is supported by all of the stakeholders, all of the partners. And that is the type of policy that we want folks to get behind. Policy that is comprehensive and that is not only popular and, and fancy in name, but in the in the words, this policy makes sense. And it allows for the state board to build a program so they can test this thing out. I know folks want to move us into the direction of, of Chicago, where they have actual vote centers in our prisons. And I'm in support of that. I'm a returning citizen myself. I was incarcerated at a time where I could not vote for Obama. And I wouldn't have want nothing more than the vote. But what I wanted, what, I, what we do want is to make sure that the process is smooth and that it makes sense and that we're going to actually have an opportunity to cast our ballot. So let's make sure the state has an infrastructure uh, for how they do that. Um, and then lastly, if I may, I am a part of the Reimagine Youth Justice Coalition. And this is a, a group of Black-led young people, organizations that are um, doing the work on the ground. And I'm excited that tomorrow we will be having a youth lobby day where we're bringing organizations across the state, life after release, um, the Fresh program out in PG County, Yes Drop-In Center, the Algebra Project. I mean, these are amazing organizations 
that are going to be leading their own lobby day tomorrow. So I ask folks to tune in. And then following that day, Alfred Justice will be having our own uh, legislative update where we too will be, you'll be hearing from folks across the state on a variety of issues um, from voting rights to an ombudsman uh, behind the walls, making sure we have somebody that can hold the Department of Corrections accountable um, to education and school policing and SROs and so it's going to be a robust conversation and I'm just so excited to be here and share um, the many uh, policy initiatives that we're working on. It's a lot. It's a lot. I don't think I have enough time to talk about them all. But. <laughs> well, sis, you know, your work is critical. I'm so glad to see the, the bill over or the veto overturn from uh, Larry Hogan to make sure that women who are returning home have access to the same support that men have. And frankly, you know, there's so many other layers because women tend to be primary caregivers of children and making sure that there's a smooth transition back home, especially when they're going home to their children is, is critical. And doing yeah. that mixed population is really tough. Um, yes. You are being acknowledged for your work all over the place, Forbes magazine and, uh, uh, you know, the, the Maryland, uh, Maryland magazine, you know, you, you, you're doing that thing and you're doing it with authenticity. Um, you're doing it in a manner that's not self-serving, not to climb, not to build a brand, but to make sure people have access to their civil rights and are treated like human beings um, and not just some number in the system. So we appreciate you. Right. Bring everybody back in. And, um, you know, all of you are doing work uh, in the field of, the criminal legal system, as well as, um, frankly, building community. And, you know, I'd love to know uh, uh, what things do you think we need to be looking forward to in the future when it comes to uh, making sure that the rights of people who are incarcerated are protected, but also that the rights of people who will be targeted by the system uh, are, are protected so they don't end up incarcerated unwarrantedly. And I'll start I'll, with you, Michelle. Or go ahead, Michelle, and then we'll get Michelle. Um, I think the one the one thing I will point out is that there is a population uh, within the reentry community that is not often talked about. And that's our trans community. That's our LGBTQ community, right? And um, you know, I personally feel like I have an obligation to do more, right? To support that uh, our our brothers and sisters there to make sure that their rights are also being protected behind those walls. To make sure that they we have services that target them and make sure that our services is, is equitable. Um, and so, um, what I think, you know, what I know. It's important for me to do is always have my door open uh, at the office and always be available as much as I can to hear our folks and to um, and, and treat them as individuals and not you know just have this this general way of doing the work, but specializing your craft and making sure that you are um, adapting uh, to whatever environment uh, is required to help people get where they need to go. Sometimes it's just a matter 
of, of, of supporting them in this rapid response way. You know, not oftentimes are you going to have this this great plan put together to figure out what they need, but just being willing to work with people step by step and helping them um, in, in their journey. Um, so. Thanks, Nicole. Before I pivot to other folk, I would love to actually hear from you. Um, do, do you feel like there are any differences in the Baltimore City delegation um, in the ways that they're interacting with advocates um, under Stephanie Smith's leadership on the House side? Um, you know, I feel as a, as, as a citizen, we get way more information than we used to get before. But what, what does it look like in Annapolis? Are we moving on things important to uh, black and brown people? I know the Maryland Legislative Caucus, um, Deborah Davis was the other day went off about, you know, people <laughs> people being, um, no, we're going to today, we're going to tell the truth and shame the devil. But she went off about people, the divide and conquer that folk do on mm -hmm. Issues important to us. So, what are you seeing? And be honest. Nobody's coming to check you. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be diplomatic. You know, every now and then I gotta be diplomatic. You know, put the smiley face on it. Um, I think under you know delicate Stephanie Smith's leadership, you you definitely see a change in information, right? You definitely see, um, uh, you know, the ways in which they're operating. You definitely see the, the newsletters and the information coming out about what uh, folks are doing. I know particular, you know, particularly, um, I find it a little difficult for advocates to get on the Baltimore City delegation's agenda. I don't know about the rest of the advocates, but I have not been able to get my issues and the issues of the people that I serve on the Baltimore City delegation's agenda. So I don't know if that has anything to do with process or if I missed a step. Um, I don't know if it has anything to do with they maybe they are, you know, gonna work on the issues that I'm interested in and they don't feel that I need uh, a, a special meeting. Um, but I just have had, you know, trouble uh, being able to address the, the, the very people who I participated in work in and voting for um, in the delegation. But it's a weird thing right now in Annapolis. I'm not comfortable with virtual advocacy. That's just not my thing, right? I'm adjusting to it because I had to. Um, but I want to be, I want to see you. I want to see how you react to, right. to what I say. I want to see how your leg moves. When your colleague has said something, that, right? body, that body language is a lot. When someone it's a like, lot. It's a lot. and you're looking at them like you're not with me, so I'm gonna keep the, the, the right, right. I want to see you come out that door in Annapolis on the on the right hand side where most people don't know you have no private meetings at, and I want to see who you coming out that door with. I want to see who you sitting down having lunch with at Harry Browns. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be there. I, you know, and I feel like. They getting over like a fat rat by us not being in the yeah. physical there, right? Yeah. That they're able to do, you know, it, they just more back, more back stuff can happen without people able to to witness how things are going down. So I just want to ask one last question about um, any other legislation that you think is important. Uh, for women in Maryland, not only women who are formerly in incarcerated, but uh, women who are who are uh, 
interacting with the criminal legal system and uh, you know how we're able to avoid complacency in the Mar Maryland General Assembly. And that's from one of our guests, one of our viewers. Oh, okay. Me? Yeah, that's a question. Yeah. Okay. So what, uh, say that question again. What are some what of the policies that help women? Um, uh, if there's a delegate out of PG County, I got my list up. There's a delegate out of PG County that has legislation around um, not discriminating against individuals with criminal records in reference to housing. And I think that bill needs a little bit more work. I'm willing to support that work, but we also have to take into account that when it comes to housing in a place like Baltimore, you know, we have the housing authority that's like a federal agency that runs that, right? Um, Janet Abrams is uh, with public housing, right? And so the state kind of doesn't control that, that, that subsection. So I kind of think that bill it is, is something well-intentioned, but it really needs to figure out how we uh, connect those dots both like locally when it comes to uh, a PHAs um, and then on the state level when it comes to private landlords and making sure that if we are going to have a housing bill that that bill would say that if a landlord uh, does uh, uh, um, discriminates against somebody with a criminal record and you can clearly see that then there needs to be some repercussions so I think you know for, for, the, for the population I serve uh, uh, that are people who are having a lot of trouble uh, accessing housing for their children um, I think that bill is a step in the right direction but it really needs some more work because we need some uh, some so if you don't do this, this is what will happen. And that is oftentimes what's missing in our policy is repercussions to not doing a thing. Um, so that's that's what that's one of those um, bills that I think that specifically for women benefit from. So Michelle, um, and also ease, like right, right, you're right. gonna see how 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 many women who are primary caretakers of their families that are engaging with the penal system, how these fines and fees just, just, just kill them, right? Like you can't do anything extra with your family. You can barely pay your bills. You got to borrow. You got to raw Peter to pay Paul, and you know it's just hard. And it, and it, and it really uh, not being able to financially provide for your family. It 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 um it creates a ripple effect with you and your your girls and your sons and you can't provide for them and you can't do which what they need you to do like basic stuff and so it really starts to weigh on the family's infrastructure and and um and that's one of those bills that I think you know it will impact men but it will those fines and fees will impact uh women greatly and uh the GPS monitoring if the if the state passes legislation that they will incur the the GPS monitoring fees that is going to be a big lift uh, off of our women who are engaged in, in the penal system. So thank you, Nicole. That question was from Anikwenze Obu. Obu, excuse me. Anikwenze is a, a dad in Baltimore City. He's an advocate and, you know, he just volunteers his time to pay attention to policy and legislation. And that's those are the folks who are uh, engage with LBS. Michelle, I want to ask you that complacency question before we go on to another question. How should people keep a fire lit under our elected officials so they don't become complacent, particularly with what um, Nicole was just talking about, that you're not there with them. You're not able to 
you know, walk out the elevator and say, I, you know, give them the look like I see who you're walking down the hall with or whose office you just came out of. How do we avoid that complacency? You know, it's tough. This is my first session really participating. Um, it's actually been incredibly disheartening. And I hope that any uh, elected officials listening to this, if you're listening, hear this. Like, it's so disheartening. You're testifying in these hearings and you just see them on their phone, heads down, like not paying any type of attention. And people are talking about, especially for a lot of these police reform bills, the juvenile justice reform bills, people are talking about some of the worst experiences that they've had losing a loved one, being incarcerated, like all these types of things. And you're not even giving them that type of time of day. And I don't know how that compares to um, like regular session, but I do know that it's a lot easier when you're at home on your computer to engage in that type of behavior. And so, you know, people are really putting themselves out there in this time that we are all so incredibly vulnerable. And so I would challenge any elected officials um, who may be hearing this to really think about that and hold your um, colleagues accountable for that as well. Um, you know, a lot of the ways, though, in terms of keeping up the pressure, I know that, I mean, reaching out to your elected officials constantly um, is so critical and by any means. Um, I know that we've tried to do a couple of calling people out on Twitter. I don't know how much that has worked or not, but I know that that type of public pressure, um, you know, you can be in someone's inbox as much as possible, but taking it to a public platform um, is also important. Um, I also want to shout out theirs, and I don't know if we were going to talk about this at all, but on Thursday, um, there's a call to action, um, an emergency action um, for protesting for the actual police reform bills that the advocates have been asking for um, and not the watered down bills that I think is where a lot of this is going. Um, so that's gonna be this Thursday, March 4th at 4 p.m. meeting at the Annapolis District Court and a March to Lawyers Mall. Um, and so the demands are to pass Anton's law with no bad amendments, a full repeal of Leobor and nothing less and absolutely nothing less. Um, having a statewide use of force Stanford standard, getting cops out of schools, and then local control of Baltimore City Police. Um, you know, I think there's always compromise, but there's been so much compromise this session on police reform bills that should really be no-brainers. I mean, I just was on Twitter earlier in this session, and they said that no-knock warrants passed in Virginia, and that is not what we are getting here at all. This bill, at least with the amendments that I saw earlier, was not get, is not getting rid of no-knock warrants at all. And so, you know, I think that, um, I know that it's tough, right, in the pandemic, and I have been to a lot less protests now than I have gone to before um, to be out and in the streets, but I do think being at that protest and putting that type of pressure is important as well, in addition to the other types of virtual um, and distance type of pressure that we've been trying to put on. So that's on Thursday at four, that particular protest. Thursday at four or on March 4th? Yeah. We're going to march on the 4th. Uh, Three, four at four. <laughs> uh, we're going to march from the Annapolis District Courthouse uh, to Lawyer's yep. Hall. Yep, that's correct. And I can um, post and send the uh, flyer as well. And this is with the Maryland Coalition for um, police accountability. So great, great. And we are going to talk more about um, the law enforcement officers' bill of rights and making sure there's a standard of engagement with police in this state. Um, th this also plays into what Nicole is talking about. And what I know is this pandemic continues to morph and change. And there are a couple of places that have strains that are not impacted by the vaccine. And we also don't know that the vaccine will last into next season, right? And so if we find ourselves next session 
having the same limited interaction with the state house, we need to make sure we're advocating that for rules that don't preclude the general public from engaging. Right now in the house, uh, they don't take speakers beyond the people who file the bill and maybe a couple of others. And for those of you who advocate who have advocated previously in Annapolis or on the Hill in DC or in your own state house, you know, or your own, your county, county executive uh, meetings or your city hall meetings, you know, it's important when there are 50 people packed in the room ready to testify how that impacts the way legislation is moving. And I do think that that has impacted the way legislation moves uh, this session. Although the Senate is more liberal, the Senate has not been good on uh, uh, criminal justice reform. So, you know, I want to pull you in as well, Chris, um, and ask what other things people can do. And this question's from John, Joe Carlson. What, um, other than calling or emailing, what are other actions people can take to pressure their representatives um, so that they know these are bills you want to pass? And Michelle kind of alluded to some things like social media is one way, but what are some other things that you all have been doing at JOTF or that you've seen others do that, you know, the general public can participate in on making sure bills reflect what, what citizens want as opposed to what elected officials think that um, some police union or someone else uh, is insisting they pass? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I would argue is that um, when it comes to legislative officials, you know, they respond mostly, uh, not even necessarily phone calls and emails, but just to actual in-person meetings, right? Like it's easy to lie to somebody or, or kind of finesse somebody uh, from a distance or dodge an email or dodge a phone call. But when you actually have to look at a person face to face, uh, that can be a bit of a problem. I would argue that, uh, especially if you were part of an organization, set up a meeting with a legislator and then note if they decide not to set up or who dodges the question. And then I, as, as has already been mentioned, I would out them entirely on uh, on social media. The other thing I think that is very important for every member of the of, of, of Maryland to do who's interested in, this, in, in these issues is to actually really educate yourself on the issues. This sounds like common sense, but um, there are so many issues. Now with JOTF, I specifically am focused on workforce development and employment. My end game is to make sure that you have a full-time job where you can take care of your family so that the vast majority of the reasons why you might even get caught up uh, don't even snatch you. Let me just, as an example, things that in, in Maryland State, a lot of people just may not be aware of. Your credit history can jack up your auto insurance rates by nearly double if you have lower credit history. I'm going somewhere with this. If you can't afford auto insurance, then you can't drive your vehicle because Maryland mandates auto insurance. If you can't drive your vehicle, but you have to get to work, then you're screwed. 50% of Marylanders have to drive cross county just to get to their place of employment. Transportation then become the largest barrier to employment. If you look at the, just Baltimore by itself, only 9% of jobs can be reached by public transit. So I just say that to say this, auto insurance has to be reformed to eliminate non-driving factors like credit history, zip code to make it more affordable for people. Why am I saying that in the context of your question? Those are the kind of things, let me just put it like this. If we keep the conversation, and I, there's nothing wrong with you know changing the policing structures and stuff like that, that is 100% true. But access to capital, access to funding, access to employment, are also things that we need. A criminal record is the number one barrier to employment. There are bills on the table right now that I feel like the vast majority of people just may not know about. House Bill 238, automatic expungement of non-convictions. These are acquittals, dismissals, no process, and yet your government, specifically the courts, are saying, hey, 
You know, we can't expunge those no process. We can't expunge those dismissals. We can't expunge the crimes that you were not found guilty of simply because we have some technological glitches and it's going to cost us too much. So I think being educated on the issues outside of, let me just put it like this in a different way, outside of having an image, and I'm not saying anybody on the call is doing this, I'm not saying anybody at LBS is doing this, but having an image of the African-American struggle specifically in relationship to policing and not to barriers to employment, I think needs to change. And I think we need to have more conversations and just more intellectual uh, debates on what is the best way to get and keep somebody employed. So I just think having that information and then framing that when you have your conversations with legislators, that this is about employment access. This is about making sure that somebody can take care of the family, that they can afford child support, that their license isn't suspended for stupid reasons like I couldn't pay. Like, do you understand? I hope that what I'm saying is getting yes, across. Yes. yes. Clearly. Oh. If people are employed, you can lessen a lot of the burdens that I that I am consistently seeing. And then bringing that conversation to legislators. I mean, it's employment. Who is going to resist actual jobs? So I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Joe, for uh, that comment. Nicole, I'll take your last comment before we shift to the next part of our discussion. You're muted. Okay. Oh, sure. Sorry. You're good. Oh, got me now? Okay. I didn't control it. If it was up to me, I'd be unmuted the whole time <laughs> and waiting for your question. Um, another way that what we had, what we found was that, okay, making videos because sometimes people will send a long email and most people are not reading past the first paragraph so if you're not getting your message across within the first and second paragraph most legislators or just regular people are not need, are not going to read it right so what we found is making short 30 second videos and sending it to those legislators uh make a make a good deal we also encourage people to research who your legislators are who are they connected to? It's very possible that you know a family member or you know a prior co-worker that's associated with that legislator and reach out to them and say, listen, you know, your legislator isn't not being responsive because they, they give off this really good image to their, to their peers and to their family members. And so they would hate for somebody close to them to have to come to them and say, you know what? I was talking with your constituent today and they said that you don't respond to emails or you don't respond to phone calls. And so we just got to be creative in how um, we're getting the folks. Right. And so one of the, the two things I would say is create those little small um, 30 second to minute videos, send those in an email. Um, they can also be used at testimony as well. As we know, the Senate is, is very limited. Um, sign on up to sign on letters. Find out what organizations are doing these sign-on letters? Um, um, Common Cause Maryland, led by a black woman now, uh, led a great uh, campaign in the beginning of the session to make sure that um, the Senate and the Speaker knew that the folks in, in Maryland was pissed at these bullcrap rules that they was digging out. And so find some, some sign-on letters that you can also be a part of. But research your legislator and find out who they are, um, what they like, where they go to eat, and, and you can pop up there socially distanced. If they like ice cream in their district, pop up at the ice cream shop. Yeah. You know, we just got to find ways um, to get to them because we can. Well, Nicole, Michelle, Christopher, thank you so much. Uh, I want to wrap this up. Thank you for those of uh, our viewers who are asking questions in the chat. Keep them coming throughout the rest of the remainder of the show. Um, you've heard some advice from our guests. I want to uh, jump on a tail end and say, yes, people need to research. But, you know, those of us already doing the work in Annapolis and in City Hall and 
um, with Congress, we also uh, have to recognize our privilege and make sure that information is accessible to people. To ask somebody who might have low literacy and is working three jobs to do research if they want to take action, um, you know, in some ways there's got to be a bridge that we make so that information is more accessible um, than, you know, it intentionally it is not right now. So absolutely research who, who represents you. Ask a friend, ask Miss Sadie down to church, ask your neighbor. Um, but also sometimes it's just great to show up uh, and, you know, showing up is important and seeing your face and just letting them see that you're watching um, and you peep what they're doing. Very critical. Everybody's not going to be a lawyer. Heck, I'm a lawyer and I'm not a lawyer. Um, so everybody's not going to be a lawyer. Everybody's not going to be a policy analyst. And, you know, there are many barriers that keep people from engaging with the law and they should know they have a right to show up at their elected representative's office. They have a right to request a meeting. They don't have to be with an organization. I love that recommendation of, of short videos. Um, it's really important. And, and what we don't wanna allow is if another session happens in a socially distant manner that people continue to be kept out of the process. Um, and we also can reach out to our city delegation and state delegate, uh, our House delegation and our Senate delegation to ask them when things are going to show up on their agenda so that advocates who are doing the work have space to engage them uh, and not be left out in the cold. So thank you, friends. I want to bring my brother Dave on back and we're going to keep it moving. Please come back and join us another time. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Hey, Davon. So what's the word on? <laughs> yeah, policing, policing. So, yeah, so you have a lot to say. They have a lot to say. And, um, you know, and, I, and, I, and again, I'm glad you're with, with me because I think there's a lot to unpack here um, that I think is going to be really important for those watching um, to really be diligent about. Um, so, again, what I'm going to do, one of LBS's big priorities is police accountability is something we've been working on for many years. Um, so what I want to first do is actually start with um, just some 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 big picture framing um, that I think is particularly important, um, because one of the things that is clear to me is that um, given the fact that we're in a moment where police accountability, police brutality um, over the past you know five to six, seven years, um, maybe even a little more than that, it's become more mainstream. Um, there's certain frames that people, I think, approach policing from that I think get in the way people really thinking about what meaningful police accountability legislation comes from. And I want to start with what for LBS and many of our partners is the standard for how we should determine and assess what effective police accountability legislation is. Because I think, you know, and, and we actually talked about this a little bit a few, a few uh, podcasts ago that you know, a lot of what we get to see on the public mainstream are pleas for people recognizing Black people's humanity as the basis for the kind of policymaking that's done around Black folks. And that often leads to policies that are important, but that for us are not central, right? So, you know, conversations about body cams so we can see people, you know, that helps people to you know, be held accountable that way, or police training, things like that. Um, but for us, police accountability 
um, is successful to the extent that it transfers power into the hands of the community and its ability to exercise power over the law enforcement entities that serve them. For us, that's, that's the bottom line, that if you don't have community control over policing, this provide because community control provides the greatest deterrent to police brutality and misconduct. If officers, because officers are rarely ever convicted criminally of their abuse and misconduct against the community. But it's the ability for the community to levy consequences against police officers, namely getting them fired, that is the greatest weapon that the community has in deterring police brutality and police misconduct. So I want to ask you a question about that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it is that there's not maybe more of an outcry from the public to ensure there's community control of police? Do you think people assume that we have control of Baltimore City Police to begin with? Or, you know, what are the disconnects that, you know, we do have a voting base here um, that will readily get with the delegation when there's something that they want? Mm -hmm. You know, do you think it's that people don't know that our Baltimore City Police Department is controlled by the state? Um, do people obviously we talked about this before that the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights Bill of Rights is uh, named in a way to make people think it's about uh, celebrating heroes and um, making sure that they're taken care of with insurance and education and housing. And it's none of those things. So what's the disconnect? Right. Well, and I think so. There are a few things. One is, is that I think popular mass media, I think, has impacted the collective consciousness of people paying attention to the issue that, you know, if you watch too much MSNBC, too much CNN, you, you know, you're going to get um, really the, the notions of police accountability activity um, that feeds into the spectacle of black suffering. That's a core part of what drives, you know, ratings. Um, and so you, so we get really shallow notions of racial justice uh, from that. I think the other piece, and so one of the things that goes along with that is that rarely ever, again, on kind of the, the um, cable network mainstream media, is there enough Congress, there's a lot of conversation about policing, a lot of it's on the federal level, but for those who've been working on the issue of police accountability, the, you know, policing policy is the providence of state and local law. And so there isn't enough attention paid to the importance of state houses in the movement of addressing issues of policing. And then I would say lastly to that question is, is that when we talk about control and power, oftentimes power is not properly understood as it relates to what we mean about community control. Because I think but one of the things that we've emphasized is what is the ability for the community to exercise power over the operations, discipline of law enforcement, right? So for instance, in 1999, there was an effort to establish what we currently have in Baltimore City, the Civilian Review Board, but it wasn't given any real power, right? And that's one of the things that, and I'll talk more about this later, but, but that's one of the things where there's the greatest level of resistance from those who are opponents of police accountability. Um, so that's one piece. And then, and then the other, again, big picture framing piece is that, <clears throat> you know, given that everything's virtual, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to really listen to the conversations that are being had by legislators about policing. And what's become very clear to me is that there's a selective de-emphasis on the racialized aspects of policing 
you know, in the conversations about the policies that are being assessed. Um, so, for instance, you know, Republicans, they continue to characterize um, police accountability um, advocacy as anti-police without acknowledging the ways in which there is societal valorization of police officers. And if you look at many of the studies, the polling that's been done on public opinion around law enforcement, even though there has been given greater space in mainstream media to discuss issues of police brutality, um, the, the Americans, the, the, the majority of Americans continue to hold favorable views of police officers, right? In spite of the, the conversation around police brutality, right? And so, and so to characterize, when you think about the reputations of law enforcement and police officers, they've remained relatively um, um, secure in terms of being held in high regard. Conversely, if you look at a variety of research on the ways in which Black people are criminalized and the, the, the kind of criminalized stigmas of Black people, that those continue to persist even as there is a greater awareness of the problems within policing. And so, and so one of the things that I hear in conversations that policymakers are having about policing is that they're not putting the, the, the need for these policies to shift in the context of the way in which racial inequities and white supremacy are as a system. That mm -hmm. is like people not liking black people, hating black people, but white supremacy as a system, as, as, as a system that determines outcomes disproportionately that do harm to black people, that the system of white supremacy still governs every element of civil society, which includes law enforcement. And again, there just isn't enough conversation yeah. about that um, in the, the conversations that are being had in you know, subcommittees on the floor, et cetera. And so it's just been frustrating watching a lot of these legislators do that. So Devon, you know, you previous um, viewer who asked a question, Anik Wenzi, um, has said before that, you know, it's interesting in Baltimore City, the systems that don't have community control are the systems failing people. So Baltimore Police Department is not controlled by Baltimore residents in Baltimore City. Um, Baltimore City Public Schools is not controlled by the residents in Baltimore City. You know, we've been, we're fighting for um, House Bill 10, 1026 that got pulled uh, to make sure there is an elected school board or partially elected school board where there are more um, positions for people elected by the public than there are people appointed. That was pulled down. We heard a lot of nonsensical beefs about, uh, you know, why do we need this? Let's wait and see. Um, typical dialogue that pretty much say, hey, you general public, we know better than you. And, um, you know, give us a chance to show you how much better than you we know. Uh, and, 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 you know, these systems that are not controlled by the public, despite the fact that we pay taxes, despite the fact that we, you know, go to the ballot box, those are the systems that are not working for people in the way they ought to. And when you talk about racial justice on top of that, you know, the Democratic Party um, in Maryland, you know, people talk about Maryland being such a blue state and, you know, 
when I say to people, I'm like, it's more like maroonish purple. <laughs> when it gets down to it, people protect their coin and, and stick with their race before they, you know, pass legislation that is truly progressive and for the public. But right. the Democratic Party in Maryland in particular uh, has not come out very strong on racial justice, particularly in this session. Will you share your thoughts on, you know, how that's impacting us and, and, and what we need to be focused on to move on that? Right. So, so I mean, to that point, one of the big picture piece that I think jives really well with that is the fact that, and I'm going to get into both, I'm going to focus particularly on Anton's law, which deals with um, the access of police investigatory files. And I'm also going to address the LEOBR repeal and replacement pieces of legislation in a moment. But one of the things that we've gotten in response to our criticisms of what particularly the Senate has put out on the LEOBR front is this notion of, oh, we're making progress. You know, please celebrate that we're making progress. And one of the things I think is important to be clear about is that what people are asking for is racial justice. Like people aren't asking for progress. And I think the the for folks to insist that we accept progress as acceptable, you know, one can't both do that and then claim to be an advocate for racial justice. Right. That that's really that's one of the kind of quintessential tactics that liberals use as a way to maintain the status quo, to give small concessions um, that don't get at the larger structure and really engage in the really meaningful structural changes that are necessary to achieve the goal that I described at the top, which is about the importance of shifting power to the hands of the community. Um, so if we go with, so today, um, there was some floor debate about Anton's law, um, which was coming out of the Senate, um, uh, sponsored by Senator Joe P. Carter. Um, this is a bill um, that, so currently, police investigatory files, so the files um, of which pertain to investigation of a police officer's alleged misconduct um, are prohibited from public disclosure. For those who have submitted public information at request, you know, government agencies are required um, to give certain kinds of information to the public when requested. And there are three general categories of, of, of where certain information is in the kind of matrix of the uh, Maryland Public Information Act. There are things that are mandatory disclosures. So if one asks or requests certain information, things in that category must be disclosed. There are then uh, discretionary disclosures. So things that must be disclosed, um, barring certain things um, that the agency or the custodian of the records um, and criteria that they're provided with, um, that they have to disclose if it, if it, unless it, it touches one of the things that um, those agencies feel is not in the public's best interest. And then there's the last category, which is prohibited from disclosure. So again, currently police investigatory records are prohibited from public disclosure. Um, and so this is a bill that was a bit a big part of the advocacy around uh, police accountability, both LBS and other members of the Maryland Coalition for Justice and Police Accountability. Um, this is one of the major aspects of our advocacy. Um, and so, you know, for folks who've been following us, you know, for the session, you'll, you'll notice that um, the bill actually passed committee um, with, you know, relatively, you know, few amendments. Um, and, and actually, you know, since the, this podcast has been air, airing, uh, has actually passed to second reader without any substantial amendments. Um, so we're making progress there. Um, and we want to give credit where credit's due in terms of passing out 
something that has been very controversial, um, both in terms of conversations in committee and conversations that have been had on the floor. Um, I want to talk about though some of the things that were discussed on the floor about Anton's law that's important for people to have the ammunition to respond to. Um, and so one of the things that I think is ironic about the resistance to passing um, Anton's law is the fact that many of the opponents of it are concerned about false allegations that are that would be lodged at police officers. And it's interesting because this is a legislature that has had problems, that has been slow to pass expungement um, legislation, legislation that would expand opportunities for expungement for criminal records. You know, as was mentioned in the previous section, um, where criminal records have, have been a major impediment to employment. And so it's now it's the key difference, though, because this is an analogy that a lot of them make, but the key difference is that Black people will experience societal stigmas, right, in which that criminalization impacts us. Right. Whereas police are societally societally venerated. Right. In ways that, you know, black folks as a people don't experience. So so it's a false equivalency. But again, it's ironic that they're so stuck on preserving the reputation of police officers in ways that they don't seem to be concerned about the societal stigmas of inherent criminalization of black people. The other major piece. Um, in addition to cons the, the, the concerns about false allegations, we have no substantive empirical support for the claim that there will be substantial false allegations. There's no there, there, we've not been presented as a person who's testified, you know, for the last few years on this issue. We've not been presented with any substantive empirical data that would point to the fact that we should expect this plethora of false allegations. And in fact, there are, we have been the only side that has presented uh, empirical evidence by way of the Department of Justice um, report that came out in 2016, the federal government investigations into the police department, um, the Maryland Restoring Trust and Policing Commission report, right, that establishes this. There's a report that came out recently about Prince George's County Police Department, the Graham report, Right. And the way um, in which um, officers um, were not their allegations against officers were not sustained in the kinds of violence and brutality that they engaged in that was covered up by the department. So so we're the ones that actually have the empirical evidence that legislators who talk a lot about wanting to you know focus on the evidence and the data and rationale. Um, but we're the ones that have presented empirical data to support the position that not having access to these records has led to um, officers being able to continue to engage um, in the abuses um, that we've talked about. Um, and then just a couple of last things, just on some of the pieces around Anton's law that's particularly important. One is, is that the opponents of the bill, I think are intentionally describing this bill as providing complete open access to these files. It's important for the listeners to know that we're advocating that the police investigatory files go into the discretionary disclosure category, not mandatory disclosures, but into the discretionary disclosure category. So this would allow for reasonable redactions and exclusions of information to put out um, that, that the agency will feel is harmful to execute their duties or harmful uh, that are not in the public interest or harmful to the individual filing the complaint. Um, 
you know, the agency has the ability to to withhold information that that would be problematic. Um, and so it's important that we push back and not allow the opposition to characterize this as just flinging the door floodgates open in terms of records. And then lastly, on Anton's law. And this is particularly important because one of the things that has happened is that there has been a lot of energy um, and, and engagement on these issues. Um, and so, you know, apparently there were protests at legislators house over the past few days um, that was used and, and, and it was characterized um, as making people unsafe. Um, and, and so there was an analogy made that just like protesters that show up at legislators houses, right, and engage in peaceful protest, that that is endangering these legislators. What will these people do with the investigatory files of police officers um, and the allegations made against them? And, and, and really just two things to say to that. One is, is that the families of legislators are more safe than many of the people that I've ever met. Like we're, there aren't going to be very many people that are more safe than the families of legislators. There's been no reports of anybody being harmed, right? And so, so to characterize these demonstrations as unsafe is problematic because it uses the same kind of tropes of those of us engaged in social movements being scary and dangerous. Like that is, and, and the purpose of that kind of rhetoric is to, is to contain the social movement activity from being disruptive of processes that perpetuate you know, these inequalities. And I'd expect that from Republicans, right? So Republicans, whatever, that, that, that's what they're going to say. That's what they've been saying. That's a part of their rhetoric politically. But Democrats who claim to be allies of social justice, I'm disappointed that I, I, I would be disappointed to hear Democrats um, characterize demonstrations, um, people exercising their First Amendment rights. And to the to, as, as to whether the tactic of protesting at people's houses is legitimate, I think reasonable people could just could agree or disagree on that. But I think to characterize it as, as making people unsafe um, is, is the kind of rhetoric um, that undermines our that attempts to undermine our ability to engage yeah. um, in social justice. And similar to the police tactics of not wanting people to see records because it would make people unsafe. It's interesting because in both of those roles as a public official and as a police officer, you've signed up to serve the public. That's so right. it'd be one thing if it were like, you're a, a psychologist or you're someone's attorney or you're you know, a mental health professional and people are showing up at your house because you practice behavioral uh, therapy or whatever the case may be. That's confidential, that puts clients in danger, that you know, it can become unruly, especially if, especially if it's an intense debate, whether it's religious base or whatever the case may be. But if you are elected to office, we all know where you live. So we may come to your house if you don't want to talk to us in Annapolis. And if you're a police officer, you work for us. We don't work for you. So the idea that we're not allowed to know how you work for us, it, it makes no sense. And So if they want to compare both of those two things, go ahead and do that. Because in both situations, you work for the public and you signed up to do that. Right. right. You talk about the veneration and valorizing them. Uh, uh, they certainly put their lives on the line day to day, but they also create an environment that puts their lives on the line day to day. Right. Over policing of communities make communities 
less safe, right? And, and that, that, that is antithetical in some people's perspective. They don't understand that having more police causes the, the community to function in a way that is less safe than not having the police. This goes to the same thing with police and schools and, and Delegate Acevedo's um, wanting to remove police from schools. Schools that have fewer indicators of the carceral state and of, of, of children being at risk for being locked up tend to be safer mm. than schools where there are metal detectors. And you know, back in the day, the kids had to wear clear backpacks like they were going through a jail uh, to check in and people in their personal items. Um, you know, those two things go together. So if you want to talk about, you know, the public engaging with elected officials and protesting at their home, like you said, whether it's wrong or right in your mind, that's fine. But according to the constitution, um, it is legal. That's and, right. you know, they, like the police, have signed up to engage with the public. So, you know, the, the, their argument in many ways works against them because they're not being compared to private citizens or um, you know, healthcare professionals who may be helping women to exercise their right to choice. Um, that is dangerous, again, for the client, for the medical professional. It is not dangerous for me to stand near your house when you're walking up and say, you're not listening to us, we've elected you, uh, and you need to work on behalf of your constituents. Or, hey, police, um, Stop jumping out on me. <laughs> stop, stop, stop uh, uh, being a criminal in the ways you're accusing my nephew and my cousin and my son when they're not doing anything. But last I checked, you had $100,000 under your uh, mattress as a part of the gun trace task force. So, you know, it, it, in many ways, I think what you're saying, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're describing public officials by making the argument that they should not have to engage with the public, mm. which is crazy. Right. There's also legislation related to, um, did Senator Carter release legislation about body cameras and them having to be on at all times? Um, I thought I saw that coming up uh, this session, that the requirement of body cameras, because the other part of it is if you have a body camera on all the time, um, are required to, that you cannot turn it off while you're on duty. Okay, I don't need your files. I'm going to watch what you do. <laughs> as I understand it, many folk are in opposition to that as well, which is like, which you, you can't have it both ways. You don't want a body camera to provide evidence of how wonderfully you treat everybody, but you also don't want to release records so we can hold people accountable who are not doing the right thing. When you have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 complaints, you can't tell me about one false complaint, but you have people with many, many, many complaints that are the same across town. Right. I mean, I mean and, and, you know, it's cliche to say it, but like information is power. Right. And that's one of the things that I think law enforcement as an institution, the FOP, is clear that more information in the hands of the public takes power away from them, you know, and they're used to being able to control the narrative. Um, you know, one of the things, the other major things that we focus on is the LEOBR with the language to replace, you know, due process for officers. Um, and one of the things, you know, that, that I want to say that I think is really, it's just so fascinating. One of the things that's happened is that the FOP has made an interesting pivot. 
and are describing, you know, both opening opening up of transparency, you know, as it relates to Anton's law, and the repeal of LEOBR um, as 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 making black officers particularly less safe. And one of the arguments that they're making, particularly as it relates to LEOBR, is that LEOBR was established back in 1974 to address the fact that that police commissioners were discriminating against black officers. So this is a thing that now has become a new talking point of the FOP and is being said over and over and over again. And and I was and, and my hope was that it would eventually die down because as a person who's done extensive research both on the policy the, the policy of LEOBR and its history, um, you know, one of the things that is undeniable, um, again, as a person who's gone through the records, there is there is there is zero, there is zero reporting on LEOBR during the legislative advocacy to establish it and soon thereafter that the that LEOBR had anything to do with discrimination against black people. In fact, during that period of time, there were still major there were there were still major barriers for black officers to even enter the ranks of being law enforcement. In other words, there weren't even enough black officers Right for that to be one of the major concerns that would have been reported as to why the LEOBR was being put in place. So again, this is you know to all the legislators that talk about the importance of data and information, right? Because during so the the, the voting session on um, the bill SB six twenty seven that I'm about to get into, which deals with LEOBR repeal, literally a couple of senators just asserted that that was a big part of why it was established and why the protections are there. And there's zero <laughs> empirical evidence to that effect. Um, and so, so that's, so that's an, an important starting point. Um, and then, and then just, you know, wanting to give a little bit of history of community control of law enforcement, because, because as I then began to recognize that this was an increasingly um, utilized talking point, of law enforcement to try to make their point. I wanted, I started to think like people really need to know the history because people are making decisions about policy that is informed by history that isn't real history in terms of what actually happened. So it's important for people to recognize that when you think about policing, the conversation around community oversight of law enforcement emerges, particularly during the late 60s and early 70s, in response to the fact that they were, you know, folks who are familiar with history know that during that period of time, there were a variety of major civil unrest that happened during that period of time, you know, major civil unrest. So like what we saw in 2015 in Baltimore, like arrests like that happened around the country, um, you know, in Watts, in Detroit. Um, in, in Maryland, it happened both in Baltimore and on the Eastern Shore in Cambridge, Maryland. There were actually two in Cambridge, Maryland um, in the 60s, which don't often get enough attention, um, where martial law was actually um, established um, in Cambridge um, during those civil unrest. So a majority of the civil unrest that were that emerged during that period of time came as a result of police and uh, brutality um, against black people. So community oversight emerges during a period of time when the community is, is, re, is, re, is reacting, responding. Civil rights and black power activists are responding to 
the gratuitous violence of police brutality that was visited upon black people. Um, and so that's particularly important. Now you put that in perspective. So community oversight is emerging as a demand in a variety of ways and so not even just policing. You see this in terms of anti-poverty programs and community action programs. So the idea of community control is emerging as a set of policies that's getting federal support, you know, in the midst of the great society programs. And so, so community control of law enforcement becomes one of those policies that emerges as a major demand. The fraternal order of police begins to organize against um, the formation and the advancement of the issue of community oversight. And they describe the, the calls for community oversight as an anti-police coalition of advocates, right? So that's how they describe the, the pushback against um, community oversight. That's particularly important because when we ask for community oversight, we're talking about something that's not new, right? But we're talking about something that we know that the fraternal order of police has been fighting at least for the past 50 to 60 years. So we should be clear that there is a perspective they hold that is that, that and this goes back to the point you made about those public systems that the public doesn't control. These are the systems that most directly touch black people. So a part of the way that white supremacy, I think, operates in this context is the notion that black people don't deserve the right to control the, the institutions that, that govern our communities. So the police work for us. The community control shouldn't be such a radical idea, but it was posed historically as such a radical idea and continues to be characterized as a radical idea. Um, and so as we get into um, SB 627, you know, what I've heard, I, you know, there was a press conference the other day where the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee presented um, the bill that actually ended up coming out of committee, which is different than the bill that came in. Um, it, it's a bill um, that was significantly weakened, right? And for us, it's a bill that is mostly useless in terms of, in terms of actually addressing um, the issue of, of police accountability. And what we've heard is legislators defend the bill as like some sweeping change, as addressing systemic barriers. So, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about specifically what's problematic in the bill, right? Because they'll, they'll give small examples, small things here and there. Um, but here's specifically um, what we find to be problematic um, about the bill. Um, the first thing that I think is particularly important, as I mentioned, community oversight is the biggest problem in the bill. And they removed a section in 627 that would have allowed local jurisdictions to establish a community oversight body through a local ordinance that could impose and adjudicate discipline. Um, and that's really at essence what community oversight is about, uh, creating a process by which the community is able to pressure its local officials. You know, local ordinances often are, they require public input. So this would be a process that would be open to the public where people would be able to lobby their county council people to pass a piece of legislation that would structure their community oversight process that would be external to law enforcement. So it would not be an entity that lives within the law enforcement agency, but it would be an entity that would be external that the community has control over. That part of the bill, which for us was one of the most important pieces, was gutted out of the bill. And what we have been told in response is that, well, now on the police trial boards, there will be two civilians and one officer, and that that has been articulated as community oversight. I even heard some of the legislators on the floor today describe this piece of legislation as having a, a review board. 
but it's important for the public to be clear. Two civilians on an internal administrative hearing board is not community oversight. That's plugging in civilians into a police control process. But that's not an external body that has power to impose discipline on law enforcement officials. In fact, even furthermore, the civilians on the trial board, it doesn't, the bill doesn't spell out how they get appointed. So the issue with that is, is that this opens the possibility for politics to be imbued on which civilians are added to the trial board. And even outside of that, the biggest flaw in this notion that the two civilians on a trial, on a hearing board represent community oversight is that the, 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 the civilian or uh, the folks, the, the two civilians that are on this board only come into the picture when a chief hands down discipline and the officer decides not to accept the discipline from the chief. So if a chief gives discipline, officer says, you know, I didn't do it. It goes to a hearing board, which is a process we wanted to eliminate altogether, the, the hearing board process. But that aside, they get a hearing. That's the only way you get the civilian uh, input, as opposed to an external community oversight board that would be able to insert community involvement and decision making at other points in the process. They will be a part of designing and being at other points of the process as to impose and adjudicate discipline. And so, so that's a really important difference. But we're talking because we're talking about when we say community oversight, we're talking about the ability for an externally an external entity controlled by the community to impose its will on law enforcement. That's what real community control is. That's what real community oversight is. That's not what's in this bill. Do you think that, do you think that there are uh, elected officials who um, don't understand that, or do you think they understand but are willfully um, talking over what's being requested? I think it's a combination of the two. I, I do think there are some people that don't understand, in part because years ago when we were pushing for police accountability. Um, we recognize one of the big pieces of advocacy was civilians on trial boards. And we were clear that we would have to do work in Baltimore City to try to structure our process where the community was involved. But that was our advocacy back then where we had two more conservative presiding officers and where we had the political landscape which was much narrower. We, have, we now have legislators that, are, that want to claim this as an effort towards racial justice. And our argument is if that's what we're talking about, then the community oversight has to be, you know, kind of what I've described. So there's some people that I think don't get it because it is complicated and confusing. And I think there are intentional efforts to make it more confusing by those, um, you know, who are opponents. But I also think, but I also know that there are folks in the legislature um, who understand it. They understand its implications and just don't think that black people should have that kind of power over police. Um, you know, which which, again, is, is, is the biggest that's the biggest piece. And there's a you know, there's a variety of research that's been done that shows that um, community oversight bodies have had the biggest impact on sustaining complaints against police officers. Now, one of the things that's important, the last thing I'll say on community oversight for this piece before I get into some of the other kind of smaller pieces that's problematic about the bill is that. Establishing community oversight entities that don't have sufficient power can actually be worse because what it does is that it discourages the community from feeling like 
their actual participation will equate to anything and will and that will encourage people to be more disengaged. So that's a part of why we don't want the bill as it's currently constructed to be characterized as community oversight, because if people don't see the actual changes, then people will be disillusioned and disenchanted because people, the perception will have been, oh, the community has power when it really doesn't. So do you, you know? are you saying more along the lines of people, so I, what I heard you say was um, the bill will be articulated as community oversight, so perhaps people won't be engaged. Won't there be people in the public who don't want to engage because they feel trapped, like they won't be heard? Right. So, so, so part of so, so the hearing board structure is the place where the people who are still trying to push um, SB six twenty seven are saying there's community oversight. So I went over the ways in which that's limited, right? Where that's not actual community oversight. And so the concern is that if if this gets peddled as it currently is by leadership as actual community oversight, you'll have people that may be that feel like they're enthused about being in a process where they have power. But as I mentioned, there's research that suggests that if you don't actually have an external body that can actually impose discipline and adjudicate discipline and actually have power, then you'll have people involved in the process and then they'll just get disengaged because of lack of power. And I think in Baltimore City, the evidence of that is the Civilian Review Board. There were many years where there weren't even enough commissioners on the Civilian Review Board to have meetings because it had no power. Right. And so people became disillusioned. So similarly, that's why it's important for us to make sure that we are clear that when the proponents of the bill as it currently is constructed call a civilian oversight, we don't confuse the public and make it clear um, that it's not that. Um, and then just a few other, just a few other things that are also problematic a bill. And these, the, the things I'm about to mention, or all of the things that, that I'm saying are bad about the bill, were all amendments that were led by the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. So, so, you've, you've, so before you transition, before you share the, those other things, led by the FOP, and we're talking about on the Senate side of the That's right. That's and right. The opportunity to make further amendments on the House side of the legislature. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. So, so the FOP um, and all of these were were the things. And so you you know, folks who, if you're following on Twitter, folks who are criticizing, um, you know, Chairman Smith, Vice Chair Wallstriker, um, for voting with excuse me, voting with Republicans, um, with a handful of exceptions. Um, these, the things that I'm mentioning are the things for which Republicans and, and, and those two Democrats came together. Um, so um, expungement. So one of the things that this bill allows for is for a police officer to expunge the record of unsustained complaints after three years. And again, this goes along with our conversation about Anton's law. The idea that these are officers for whom work for the work for us, and if they have a record of abuse, you know, allowing them to expunge their records doesn't allow us to be able to go back and assess whether an officer is consistently being accused of something that there's a pattern, but internal affairs isn't getting to. Um, and so, so that's one piece that's in the bill that was an FOP amendment that got in the bill. Second is that um, that there's a prohibition on the use of these files, um, the investigatory file, a prohibition on those files being used in administrative and judicial in judicial uh, proceedings. So essentially what that means is that, you know, if you have these files of allegations, 
um, then a part of what happens is that um, those files can't be used as additional evidence um, in proceedings where police officers are the subject. Again, another FOP amendment to just provide more protection for police officers um, against criminal prosecution. As I mentioned earlier, you know, police officers, officers are very rarely ever um, convicted um, and very, very rarely ever prosecuted and even more rarely they're convicted um, of crimes of their brutality against our community. Um, and then lastly, um, removed something something that would have required officers to close disclose their assets. Um, we saw what the Gun Trace Task Force. Um, you saw officers that were engaged in criminal activity. You know, robbing people, uh, beating people up, stealing stuff. Um, and so the the idea is is that if officers were required to release kind of personal financial disclosures, it would allow the department more information about when um, an officer. Um, is engaging in those kinds of activities. So those are the, kind of the three major things that's left in the bill. Um, that when we talk about them voting Repu Republicans, you know, community oversight being the, the the most important one. But those other things are also things um, that Democrats cited with Republicans to put in this bill. Um, then in many respects, as Senator Carter mentioned during the voting session, it isn't really a substantive repeal of LEOBR. And, and, and the only the changes in it are small, you know, it's not not big enough to be called racial justice. Um, and that's really, you know, just in terms of just the, you know, our summary of kind of where things are, particularly with the Senate. Um, you know, it's our belief that, you know, what the Senate did were small baby steps forward. And we're not interested in applauding just the baby steps forward. You know, we're interested in, you know, giving the community power. Um, to give, giving the community oversight over an institution that's supposed to serve us. Um, and so, you know, so that's why from our perspective, um, the bill doesn't go nearly as nearly far enough to really satisfy the desire um, to really meaningfully address police accountability. Um, as I mentioned before, kudos on Anton's law. And our hope is that that remains uh, relatively unchanged and is able to get through the Senate. And that would be a big move. But as it relates to LEOBR repeal and the language to replace it, we, you know, we remain very disappointed that the community is not going to be given the power it deserves over an institution that has historically abused us um, over many years. Um, and so and so I'll briefly what I'll do briefly um, is just transition into, you know, next steps, um, because now we're, we're working to try to have an opportunity at the House to make sure that the House version is a better version. So that when it goes to conference committee, where bills on both chambers are reconciled, the hope is that we're able to make what ultimately comes out better. Um, and to be honest, we don't we don't really have you know a whole lot of hope in terms of community oversight, meaningful community oversight over in the house. It's something that you know we continue to push for, um, and I and we actually think that many of the folks that are working in the house on that bill, on the speaker's bill. Um, you know, they've engaged us as of late over the past couple of weeks and I think are, you know, genuinely trying um, to incorporate some of the things. But we have a fundamental difference in worldview in terms of what community oversight is. You know, for us, again, community oversight is about an entity the community controls, overseeing law enforcement, imposing discipline, having power. Um, that's different um, from having what they're calling charging committees where civilians that those institutions select oversee complaints. That's different. That's that. That's community participation. 
but that's not community oversight. And that's a place where there's a big disagreement um, between where we are and what we think the house is. Um, and so we expect to just be disappointed in terms of the level of community oversight that'll be in the bill that comes out of the house. Um, and so, um, you know, what we're looking to do is to continue to get people to put pressure to make sure that maybe we can get something on the floor on the house around community oversight to make sure it's meaningful. Um, you know, so we'll continue to push there. Um, but that's that's where things are. And I think uh, just to round it out and to go to a point um, that you mentioned earlier was just the fact that, you know, racial Democrats have just they've been conservative on these issues of racial justice. I mean, even listening to some of the things that the previous guests brought up. Um, just in terms of the kinds of policies that, that we have to push for, you know, things like expungement, you know, the fact that it, it was such a hard fight to get a women's pre-release, you know, center. Like these are things that, um, and in addition to the, what I just described about policing, Democrats' record on racial justice, they seem to be conservative on issues that require meaningful acts of racial justice. Um, and it continues to feed the criticism that LBS continues to have um, on the way in which the Democratic Party in Maryland calls itself blue, calls itself progressive, um, but has missed the mark in terms of what what racial justice looks like. They may have made progress. Um, and I want to quote, you know, uh, Malcolm X, a quote that I, people have probably heard me use. You don't put a knife in a person's back nine inches, pull it out three and say you made progress. You got to pull a knife out and begin to heal it before you can say progress was made. And there's no way that anybody could characterize, you know, the legislation that's likely to come out to be anywhere near pulling the knife out and beginning to heal it. Um, and that's just, you know, the problem that we see with the Democratic Party. Um, so I see that Kalila, you've been freezing up um, a bunch over the past few minutes. Um, are you? Are you? Are you? Are you good? You there? I think I'm good, but. That depends on whether or not you can hear me. Okay, <laughs> like, I hear you now. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, the, the steps you just laid out are critical, and it's important for us to um, really understand what's at play, as well as have the tools to hold our elected officials accountable. I think people, just like people say that they, they they like having the police in their communities, and that gets thrown in our faces all the time. People also like their elected officials. Uh, even if they don't um, do anything for them, <laughs> right? It's like, I know you, I know your mom, I know your sister, um, you're a good person, but they can't pin down really how that person has advanced um, their ability to live their lives, uh, have peace in their communities, have access to resources like food and, and uh, jobs and transportation and affordable housing, but they keep getting elected back into office. So I think what, what we're hearing from you um, and some of the other guests is that it's gonna be important that we also begin to groom people who have a value system and philosophies that support our communities. Um, instead of just allowing people to, you know, hold office, you know, I, one one of the representatives in my district, I have not heard a thing out of them um, since they've been elected, and they really got elected by a narrow margin, and their last name ends with A, um, but have heard nothing from them, no support for bills, no opposition of bills, um, nothing but they're taking up a seat that could be held by somebody who 
is really trying to move progress on behalf of the community. So thank you for that analysis. Um, you know, I think it's important. And what we want to make sure is that we continue to hold people accountable and pay attention. Uh, Michelle had on her Howard t-shirt. See, she's a bison. You know, I'm a Morgan State bear. And um, that's another le legislation that you know, folk can't seem to get right, even though they owe our HBCUs some reparations for the ways that they disrupted their progress. Um, so paying attention to that, you know, the current commission bill was, uh, the veto was overturned. Um, but even with current commission, there's a whole lot farther we need to go as a matter of racial justice to ensure we have a racially diverse teaching workforce, that the curriculum is um, culturally relevant, culturally affirming, culturally sustaining. Um, all of those things. And so despite the wins that we've had this uh, session, like making sure that uh, public locations like public schools uh, have access to free menstrual products, um, inversely, there are things like our civil rights on a day-to-day -day basis that our own elected officials um, in the Democratic Party are not supporting. And we really need to push in and make sure we have another mechanism to hold them accountable if they aren't able to vote in a way that aligns with what we think we need. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and that's important. That's consistent, I think, with, you know, a lot of what we heard from our previous guests and our previous conversations about just holding people accountable. It's really the biggest weapon that we have, um, you know, and making sure stuff gets through the more we're involved. Um, you know, the more pressure we're able to put on legislators to do, you know, what was necessary. Um, you know, so we, we we actually, man, we almost at two hours. So I um, want to first thank you again for joining joining us and, you know, helping to moderate these discussions. It's a lot of information. Um, and so, you know, appreciate you, you know, being able to, to, to hang with us and to, you know, help us sift through a lot of really complex information, but information the community needs. Um, and so we're going to wrap up. Um, yeah. Any, any last things you want to say before we wrap up, Khalil? Always a pleasure to be in the house and we'll come back and give you all an update on how things are going. Um, but thank you for sticking with us. Uh, as you see, I will pause my brother Davon to ask questions to make sure I understand and you understand um, something that he lives and breathes every day. Um, but make sure you bring a friend next time. Ask as many questions as possible. The goal is to make um, the electoral process, the legislative process in Maryland accessible to everyone. So we, we want to hear from you and we'd love for you to join us. All right. So, you know, we're going to have a few more episodes uh, for the duration of the session. It's about to heat up. It's about to be the time when, you know, final decisions, you know, are going to be being made about legislation. So you don't want to miss the next episodes where there's going to be a lot to tell you about. And it's going to be really important that folks continue to watch, continue to help us put pressure on our legislators to do the right thing. Um, this is uh, David Love, Director of Public Policy and Leaders of Beautiful Struggle with Kalila Harris. Thanks for tuning in to Streets of the State House. You all have a good night. Peace. Peace.